Welcome to Journaling with Nature, the podcast for those who want to turn curiosity into wonder, a pencil sketch into a rabbit hole of discovery, a moment of stillness into a life full of joy. I'm your host, Bethan Burton. Let's open the pages of our nature journals and explore this world together. Hello, this is episode 19. My guest today is botanical and natural science illustrator Lee Angold. Lee lives in Waterloo, Canada and has an interest in illustrating nature around her in a way that encourages others to take a second look and to see details and beauty in even simple everyday subjects. Lee has been someone who I've been inspired by, especially for her knowledge of colour. We chat in depth about this during our conversation today. Lee, thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to chat to you today. Thanks. I'm excited to chat with you too. I usually start by chatting with people about their early nature experiences. Did you have nature in your childhood? I did. Um, I grew up uh, very urban in downtown Toronto, but um, one of my earliest experiences was actually with my mother. Um, She is an anthropologist by training. Um, And when I was very young, she worked at um, the bones lab at Mm. U of T, cleaning animal bones. And so she would bring me into work about once every week. Um, And so I would go around and sketch all the little animal skeletons and peer in all the drawers. Um, So I grew up with that exposure, playing with bones, as well as um, some farm programs and... uh, nature walks in the ravines and stuff so so you've been a natural science illustrator from the very beginning yes um it's it's been a long way around to get back to it but uh i first heard about natural science illustration when i was um six or seven years old i saw a documentary about a woman who was uh doing illustrations of uh, it was she was working with entomologists um, and they airlifted them down onto the canopy of the Amazon rainforest, like on a great big drop net. Yes. Um, and so she was up there sketching and uh, illustrating insects that had never been seen before. And I thought that was really cool. So that was my goal. Um, when I was very young, I was running around telling people, I'm going to be a biology illustrator. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I, I then, you know, through through my teens and 20s, I, I took a completely different path and ended up coming back to it. But uh, yeah, lifelong. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> so how did you make that transition? How did you come back to it? So I was reading on your blog that you started, you did um, an engineering degree and you got to the end and thought, mm, maybe I don't want to be an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> and then what happened? Do you want to talk about that? I think in high school, there's this big pressure to to decide what you are going to do for the rest of your life. You yes. need to choose your you need to choose your your major that's going to determine what your job is, and like all of this hinges on one decision that you make when you're 17. Um, and I think at the time I was, um, I mean. Uh, 
there were a lot of factors, but I think that at the root of it, I was just scared. Like I was, I was scared of being disappointed. This like never meet your heroes thing. Um, so I chose something that felt a little safer somehow, like, you know, I'm, I'm not as tied up to it. Um, so I went through engineering school and I had, I had a lot of trouble in university. I was, um, I struggled with anxiety and, um, I also through that realized really, it took me a while, but realized that it really wasn't what I wanted to do. There are people who, you know, you go through engineering and you meet people who are like really, really passionate about engineering. And that's not what I'm really, really passionate about. I'm passionate about other stuff. Um, So I went, I got through my degree always feeling like, well, it's terrible right now, but it'll be better when I'm done. Later, yeah. And of course, yes. It would have been, it was, but it, it was better, but it still wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, and you know, as it turns out, you don't actually need to decide what you're doing when you're 17, you can change your mind. You can do many things. Um, so I was fortunate enough that I was able to explore other options and, um, sort of make my way back to my dreams. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? So you then you started studying botanical illustration? Mm-hmm. Um, so I haven't actually done a full degree in botanical art or, or even a, a full diploma. Um, but I started out uh, when I was curious about getting back into natural science illustration. I started out um, by starting with uh, uh, it's a diploma program offered through the Society of Botanical Artists. Um, and I actually ended up suspending that partway through, but, uh, it gave me an introduction into, mm. you know, some, some of the different natural science illustration fields and, and, uh, yeah, it was a, a nice start. So essentially you're a self-taught. I'm essentially self-taught. Science scientific illustrator and botanical artist and you're doing amazing beautiful work and I would love to talk with you because you were one of the first artists that I found when I started being interested in doing this myself in in um, making a career out of nature journaling and nature art and so I found you on Instagram and I was completely drawn to your work really quickly because you do really accurate pictures of things in nature, but you do it with a real punch. Like you, um, <laughs> you <laughs> your work is really poppy. It's really powerful. And I think that this is because you have a real strong attraction to color and you use color mm. in a beautiful way. And so I'd love to talk with you about color. What is it about color that you that draws you to it? Because some illustrators do black and white or... I don't know, something about your work is just so full of punch and colour. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, I will say that I do actually also enjoy working in black and white, um, and mm-hmm. I think that that can be very powerful as well. Um, but I, what I think interests me about natural subjects is how they're all fairly unique, and so they might... Um, you might have a, a pattern, like a pine cone has a, a spiral pattern, but it's never perfect. It's never, 
it's never stiff. And so I try to create that that natural look, um, whether it's with with my use of paint or my use of line, um, to not have it be, you know, this perfect rendition. Mm-hmm. It's it's nature. It should look natural. Um, some some natural science artists will put a lot of effort into making perfect color transitions mm-hmm. um, and and very very subtle color. Um, and I would rather be air a little bit on the side of leaving some paint marks and allowing some colors to be a little brighter rather than the other way around. Like make, I try to make my artwork um, seem alive, seem seem bright. And, you know, that's how I see the world. And I'm always fascinated by all these bright little pops of color that you see everywhere. Um, and so that's what I want to share with people as well. That's really interesting, in fact, because I do, I absolutely love botanical illustration, and yet the perfection of some of it puts me off in that um, it just seems like too seamless, like too perfect, and too much like a photograph, and therefore not as interesting as something that's more alive. And I was looking at your work thinking, and I was trying to think about it in my mind, like what makes this alive? So it's really interesting that you have articulated exactly what that is that it's not seamless it's not um blending perfectly and that's what makes it raw or real yeah um and i think that that those perfect little cross hatches and perfect little blends like it's a it's an admirable skill but it's not something that i am interested personally in in you know, focusing my development on. Yeah, I agree. I I think it's absolutely magical and yet I'm drawn to other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you have lots of um, information on your website, on your YouTube channel, on your Instagram page about colour theory and colour charts and how did you develop your colour knowledge? Was it pure experimentation? Uh, So I... Again, because I'm self-taught, um, and especially coming from a completely different academic background, so yeah. coming from engineering where everything is, you know, derivations from here. Here's the math that explains how this works. Going to art where a lot of art theory is presented in a very, very different way, um, and a lot of it didn't really makes sense to me mm-hmm. um, and the way my brain works in terms of, you know, artists will talk about, or, you know, art instruction will talk about color theory in terms of color harmony. Like you, you, need, you need to choose this because it harmonizes together. You need to use less colors because they harmonize together. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, like, you know, like I'm sure there's a, there's a logic there and, and what is that logic? And so a lot of what I've done is trying to trying to understand things myself and doing doing the research that I need to understand things in a way that makes sense to me. Um, and I think that I've always considered myself um, sort of a technical communicator, whether it's, you know, that's how I survived engineering school and it's how I 
it and it's what my passion is in in uh, natural science illustration. So I think the other side of that then is sharing that sort of in a text way with uh, whether it's the YouTube channel or or my blog is sharing those things that I've learned um, and presenting art in a different way for people who maybe don't connect with the the more common way of teaching. Mm, And that's wonderful because you have developed something. You've developed a relationship with colour, a relationship with art that's all about your process, your style, your way of doing it and understanding it as well. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, It's no good just learning something. Oh, this makes a colour harmony with this you know it from the inside out because you learnt it by practising it. Mm-hmm. You have this amazing thing that you do on your blog, which is you introduce us to your palettes and you have lots of different palettes and each one has a name and a purpose. Can you talk about your palettes and the purpose of having lots of different ones for different practices? Uh, sure. I mean, I think that that just developed organically a little bit. Um, When I first started botanical art, I had very little watercolor experience, but I had some sense that I would like to be working in watercolor. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had done some one of, one of the textbooks recommended for the SBA course was, mm-hmm. um, I think it's called the Botanical Palette. Okay. But it's a, a collection of different paintings by different artists, and it talks about what their materials were, what they used, and what their process was for, for making these paintings. And, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's ridiculous looking back, but I wanted to get the the ideal palette yes. and yes. everyone everyone uses different colors and I didn't really know where to start so what I did was I went through this book and looked at all of these different paintings by different artists and literally just tallied up what paints are they using mm. and okay well these are the most common paints that artists are using oh look it matches up pretty closely to this Windsor and Newton palette so I just I bought that palette thinking that must be the best because this is what the plurality of artists are using. Yeah. Um, it didn't really totally occur to me that causality might go the other way, where this is a common beginner palette, so therefore everyone has it. Therefore, that's what they're using. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so I got this palette and I had some, you know, having read some materials including in that very book about you want you want colors that are very transparent and then I'm testing these colors and they're not very transparent mm. well why is that um and so at that point I started reading up more on pigments and uh sort of took a deep dive um and started exploring that and started collecting more and more paints now it's great to try a bunch of paints, but it's not very practical to be working with 200 paints. Yes. It's easy to get addicted <laughs> to new paints, isn't it? You yeah. Go <laughs> you go in and there's this array and you think, oh, I'll try that one and that one. And then I've done this. I've got this ginormous box of random paints. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so sooner or later, you sort of have to start limiting it. And yeah. so um, gradually, I started putting together. Initially, I was putting together these little um, boxes, like the little tins. And um, so I would choose some paints for, for one tin and then... I'd read up or I'd try something else and I'd make another tin. Um, that that's that has gotten a little unwieldy. So I have a few <laughs> now that I sort of use interchangeably and can take them out to to sketch or whatever. And then I also have a studio palette that has, at this point I've been painting for long enough that I do have a fairly clear idea of what I tend to use most. And so I have a, a more stable ceramic studio palette at home it it was on your inspiration that I started diving into real color theory because when I I I have been doing art and nature art for a really long time and yet it's only been in the last few years that I started learning about color and it helps so much so when I was first doing nature journaling I, I was trying to match color with certain nature objects and I just couldn't get the match and it was so frustrating and so um I saw you had done a giant (laughs) color chart with all the paints you had and I did one the same a copy of what you had done and it took me two weeks or something ridiculous (laughs) to fill this chart and yet when you do that when you do all the swatches and you dive down and you're mixing all your colors you learn so much don't you you do, and you start noticing that you can, in fact, mix a lot of the same sorts of shades used various different ways. Exactly. So when you think you need 500 colors, you actually don't. And when you've yeah. charted them all out, you can understand that more. <laughs> yeah. It's a good feeling to have. Like, um, you know, there's certain, now there's certain colors in my palette that I don't want to live without. Like, I don't want to live without Thalo Blue. I don't mm-hmm. want to live without Ultramarine. Mm-hmm. What are the colors you can't live without? Nickel Azo Yellow. Ooh, good. Get, can you talk about this color? Yes. Um, so uh, my initial frustration with my my first little Windsor Newton palette, the, the, the thing that really stood out was the yellows. Mm. Where... I think I had, I'd read a lot about, you know, you for botanical art, you want transparent colors. Now, I mean, at this point, I feel like that, that really depends what you're doing a little bit. And yeah. lots of people do great stuff with much more opaque colors. But at the time, I wanted transparent. I wanted non-granulating. And I think just personally, I... I'm more tolerant of a little bit of opacity in some colors than others. Mm-hmm. Um, where it, you know, if, uh, if a red is a little bit opaque, it doesn't bother me quite as much. Um, but something about yellow, I wanted it to be liquid sunshine. I like, I don't want any trace of milkiness in that yellow. And unfortunately the majority of yellow pigments are actually fairly opaque. Um, mm. it's what makes them look yellow in the pan, uh, is that opacity. Yes. Okay. And so nickel azo yellow is an amazing color because it has such a transition, doesn't it? It can be really golden and it can be really transparent. Yeah, it is the most uh, transparent 
watercolor pigment in any color index. Mm. Um, and it's it's one of very few yellow pigments that's that could be considered transparent. So uh, it's um, yeah. How did you come to this color? Was it just lots of experimentation? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I um, experimented with a whole bunch of yellows, and it was just just collected a bunch of yellow paints, and and finally. Finally tried Nicolazzo yellow and was like, "Oh, this is the this is the yellow. This is, my this, yellow. is <laughs> this is what I wanted in a yellow." So the thing is, it's like I don't really paint a lot of yellow subjects. I don't. Mm-hmm. It's not that I would generally consider yellow my favorite color by any means, um, but uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely my favorite watercolor paint. Mm-hmm. I could switch out my reds or my pinks i could switch out my blues i not the yellow (laughs) (laughs) that's your favorite that's so cool i'm interested to talk a little about like indie paint makers or handmade paints because um we tend to just get daniel smith or winsor newton whatever is the the brand but there's a whole lot of amazing handmade paint makers coming out do you spend a lot of time with handmade paints um, I have, I've tried handmade paints by several paint makers, um, and some of them are very lovely. Sometimes you can get some unique pigments that aren't widely available in commercial brands. Um, it's also just, it's an interesting process. Um, watercolor paint follows a fairly steady recipe um you know you've got pigment you've got a little bit of gum arabic maybe you've got some honey or something in it um but within that there can be quite a bit of difference in how they behave um largely based on on honey content and so yeah um i've i've tried a few few handmade paints they do tend to be a little bit more expensive Mm. um just because of the labor involved Mm. um but at the same time, it's really nice to support someone who's who's handcrafting this, and it, it feels kind of special, even if it's yeah, it's a treat, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a, I think of it like a little handmade chocolate or something. You know, oh, they, they, come they in do those look little... like little candies, <laughs> don't they? <laughs> so in two thousand and eighteen, you did a hugely ambitious personal project which was the daily leaf can we talk about the daily leaf project you did yeah absolutely um so i i every day in 2018 i went outside i collected a leaf i mapped where i found it and i made art of that leaf um so i varied what my medium was i you know, there's there was quite a bit of experimentation within that. Not all of it was very realistic, but every day I painted a leaf. It could be really tiny. Some so some things took thirty seconds, and some things took ten hours. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, so that was that was a project, <laughs> <laughs> a challenging one. I c- I can't imagine doing a three sixty five day project. Yeah. Um, 
the challenges were, I guess, a little bit different than I expected them to be. Mm-hmm. I, I thought since they didn't, I, I'd done some daily art projects in the past, but like only a month long. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I'll still be able to do lots of other stuff because if I'm working on something else, I can just do a very short little leaf. The challenge I found was with context switching, where there's really only so much you can focus on in a day. And so I I found it difficult to work on a sustained on a longer project, um, you know, a bigger painting while also doing Mm. a leaf every day because I would have to interrupt it. And even even if I did something really simple, it was just... Now I'm thinking about something else and now I'm done that. And if I if I did it at the beginning of the day, then after I was done, I couldn't get into the other thing. And if I pushed it off to the end of the day, it was hanging over my head the whole time. Yeah. So that was a bit of a challenge. Otherwise, it was all right. <laughs> but you managed it. And then at the end of the year, you had a, or maybe in early 2019 you had an exhibition for all the leaves which must have felt so good to have them all yeah it was it I did exhibit them all together um, at a local um, community space it was very interesting hanging them all up because they'd been collecting in a stack and the stack got quite big but it you know it's it's still paper and once they're taking up several rooms all around, it's just, just like you're sort of faced with your own insanity. Like, what am I doing? <laughs> Is that something you'd do again or was it just too much? Absolutely not. Um, I, would, I, would, I would strongly recommend that anyone else do like a month-long project. I think yeah. that getting in the habit of making art every day is... Mm good and valuable um but I am done with daily projects yeah yeah pressure in art I don't know I feel it I feel it if I have a commission or something I don't do a lot of commissions but if I do then I just feel a lot of pressure and I don't I'm it's not a fun feeling is it no (laughs) (laughs) so you have been to Australia you came here for the Guild of Natural Science Illustrators conference Yes, I did. Tell me about your trip. Tell me about what you saw. You did some nature journaling. You went up North Queensland. I'd love to hear about it. Yeah. Uh, so the the GNSI conference was in Brisbane. And so I, I we have some family friends in Melbourne. So we, we flew into Melbourne, visited with family friends for a few days, uh, and then we sort of went up the coast. So we went to Brisbane for the conference and then up into North Queensland, went into the rainforest. That was lots of fun. I got quite a bit of sketching in during the conference and and uh, during our, our rainforest trip and then headed back down to Melbourne and then back home. So we were there for about three and a half weeks total. I was smiling at one of your pictures on Instagram because you said this is a conference where doodling and drawing during a, during the conference is, is encouraged. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's a, it's a great group. Um, 
it's yeah, it's really fantastic. Uh, it's, it's a great group of people. Uh, so I, I'd gone the previous year to the, the conference in Washington, D.C., and I do look forward to, to going to more of them once they start up again. Mm. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> that probably won't be next year. Cause... Yes. <laughs> I'm interested to talk about the difference between nature journaling, which is much more investigative and free and relaxed, versus the scientific illustration you do, which is really exact and detailed. Tell me about your nature journaling practice, because you do nature journaling for yourself and you're also taught nature journaling. Yes. Um, so I, I do want to specify that although I, I'm a botanical artist, um, I've done some scientific illustration, the majority of the commissions that I've done have been for commercial purposes. Um, mm-hmm. so, so that is a different realm than scientific botanical illustration. And so... You know, although I do strive to to be realistic and scientifically accurate in general, generally with commercial clients, that's not really their goal and it's not quite so important. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, there are some inaccuracies that I'm aware of in some of my work. In terms of nature journaling, I, I feel like it, it's sort of, you know, one, they're related. Um where scientific illustration is about communicating something to someone else and nature journaling is a process for yourself. Now, I'm very process-driven in general with my art, where I, I once I've done something, I don't want to look at it again. <laughs> um, I do illustrations for the process of doing them, for, for what I learn while I'm doing them. Um, and so nature journaling is is more of that and, and in a less formal way where I don't have to have something polished to present to someone else. Um, it's freeing. It can be any subject that interests me. It's in a book that I don't have to share with anyone. Hmm. Um, I can abandon a sketch halfway through and do something else and write notes in the margins and play with colors. So I think that there are both valuable, um, but it's also very important to just not feel this pressure to every piece of art needs to be perfect and precious. And, you know, the process is just as important. And that's actually how you're going to develop as an artist anyway. Yeah, I really like that. The distinction between making something for someone else and making something for you and that nature journaling is really a process for you isn't it and that and having something that you don't intend to share or don't need to share you can if you want but it's not the goal mm-hmm. is is really important for self-development as well yeah um and it's also you know it's getting back to what I would think most of us are you know drew us to art in the beginning is a curiosity and a you know, an enjoyment of the process and, and being able to just do that without the pressures of all the, you know, adult, I need to finish this on this deadline stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you step outside where you are in Waterloo, Canada, what do you see? What's nature look like around you? Um, well, right now it's December. So this is our the beginning of our winter. Um, so it's about negative six degrees out oh right now. God. 
Um, so, uh, we've still got a little bit of green popping up through the ice, uh, that hasn't totally died yet. Um, I've got some, so my garden, the, the kale still survived. It'll (laughs) die eventually. But most of, most of the foliage, like the, the trees have all dropped their leaves. Um, we get snowfall every few days so then we get nice nice you know the postcard thing with all the the nice uh snow on the branches but you know that tends to melt off we get on these shoulder seasons especially we'll get a warmer day that's just above freezing and then it'll drop that back down again um so yeah so we get lots of lots of bare trees and um a lot of dried foliage right now it, that is just blowing my mind because today is okay, but we've just come out of a week-long heat wave yeah. here and we had 40, just over 40 um, degrees the other day and <laughs> I can't even imagine. I've seen snow before but only a couple of times and certainly not like that and I can't imagine living in a place where it's <laughs> <laughs> negative degrees. <laughs> I mean, Canada's a very large country, much less like Australia. So there's a, a big range of, of what the climates look like. Um, I'm in southern Ontario, which is probably, um, it's like, you know, we get, we, by Canadian standards, our, our winters are pretty wimpy. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, we do, we do definitely have a, a real winter by the standards of anywhere else in the world. Um, <laughs> and we also have very, very hot summers. So we, we've got sort of the extremes. There's, uh, there was some study done at some point about what the most common topics of conversation are in different countries. And Canadians <laughs> love talking about the weather because it's new every day. <laughs> it's all over the place. So uh, yeah. Yeah. That must be amazing, though, to to see that, especially and to document that in your nature journal, that you have a real summer, you have a real change in the patterns of weather over over the year. That must be a beautiful thing. And to be able to see, ah, oh, this is the beginning of spring. This is the beginning of when that flower blooms or, or whatever. Yeah, so, um, yeah, the, we've definitely got a very, you know, because we have these extreme weather patterns, there's there are very, very specific seasons for things where, you know, there, there's a few weeks where you can, you can pinpoint like in these two weeks, this is going to bloom. And in those two weeks, the, you know, that's going to fruit. Yeah. That's really cool. (laughs) I'd love to chat a little bit about you had a bit of a realization when you came back from Australia about globalization and about climate change and about how, we all need to start to settle into our home places and travel less. Yeah. I'd love to chat about that realization you had. I've always enjoyed travel. Um, and, you know, it it's this curiosity thing. I always want to see new places and see new things. Um, and I do really enjoy that. But... Uh, it's interesting because when you go somewhere new, there, there's a there's an acting like a tourist thing where you you visit all the tourist attractions, or if you're into nature journaling, you're out in the woods and looking at all like oh look at this weird bird, 
And weirdly, you come back home and maybe you're not someone who has looked at birds very much at all at home. So you, you go to another continent and you're with a tour guide who's pointing out all the birds and suddenly you're so fascinated by, uh, you know, here's a kookaburra, but there's plenty of birds you don't recognize at home. Yeah. In your ba- in your tiny little urban backyard, and you're like, "What's that? Oh, it's a pileated wood- woodpecker. Never seen that before." <laughs> in your own backyard, yeah. Um, and so, part of it is just you know that I think this is something that nature journaling brings is this curiosity about everything around you, and the more you the the more you look, the more questions you have, um, and once you get into that mindset, then you you see something different, and it you're primed for that. So part of it is just a realization of, oh, there's so much to, there's so much to explore right where I am. And, you know, in a related way, when I was painting a leaf every day, there's all sorts of leaves that I saw again with the seasons thing where it's like, there's only so many days of fall. So I didn't get the chance to really look into that one really closely, or there's only so many days of spring and horse chestnuts have a, oh, they're, little budding leaves are, they look alien. <laughs> um, so part of it is just this, this opening yourself up and, mm. and experiencing that creativity. But then the other, the other side was just a realization uh, about, you know, my reasoning for going to this conference, which, you know, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful experience from the conference side, but from the, from the travel side, I was definitely drawn to, I wanted to go snorkeling specifically. I wanted to go snorkeling on the Great Barrier Reef, which I didn't end up doing, but part of the draw was, well, here's this endangered thing. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's magical. It's a great wonder of the world and it's going to be gone and I need to go do that. <laughs> before it's gone, which is like a yeah. really, really depressing, horrible, <laughs> let me fly around the world, destroying the planet to go. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that, that the part of it was just going there and experiencing all these new things and then realizing, you know, and people in Australia are like, wow, you have snow. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have ice. You, you, have, you have a whole season where the plants are dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I loved your reflection on return that there's wonder everywhere. There's yeah. wonder in your backyard and it's yeah. really important to connect with that. The things that are around you are fascinating and you might not have looked at them before, just like you said, because you think they're always there. And a lot of people who come to Australia have seen a lot more of Australia than I have because I haven't gone there. I haven't been to the Great Barrier Reef before and, yeah, there's so much to see close to home and it's it's mm-hmm. really important for people to understand that, isn't it? It is. It is. When you're teaching nature journaling, what do you want to impart to your students? What do you want them to take away? Um, so I, I'm like a puppy or a six-year-old. I walk around in the woods and I pick up little, <laughs> little sticks and and you know bits of lichen and stuff. Um, and 
I think that that's so fascinating. And so in my art and also through nature journaling, I just want to share that that wonder of the world of of those things that we walk past every day. Yeah. Um, and like, this is actually really interesting and beautiful. And, you know, I want to know, know more about it. Do you want to know more about it? Um, and so, you know, I, I, but to me, a, a lot of the focus of nature journaling for myself and what I want to share with others is that that wonder that, mm. you know, going out into the world and that curiosity about what's there um, and, and helping people connect with that. And yeah. I love what you said before, how it builds on itself. Once you start it, once you get into that mindset, it just grows and grows and grows. And then you're looking over there and there's something else fascinating. And then you're looking over there and there's something else. It, it really mm-hmm. does grow itself, doesn't it? It does. Lee, how can people find you online? What's the best way to connect with you and your work? Okay. Uh, so my website is leeangle.com. Um, and you can contact me through there. I'm also on YouTube. Uh, my channel is Lee Angold, or on Instagram is the other place that I'm frequently active. Um, and again, just Lee Angold. Thank you so much for chatting with me. It's been so good to dive into, especially color and also your insights in nature journaling. Thank you so much, Lee. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Lee. I really loved having the chance to chat with her in detail about colour and watercolour choices, and I was moved by her insights about how we can travel across the globe looking for natural wonders, but in the end, we have natural wonders in our own backyard that we might not have explored before. You'll find links to Lee's work in the show notes for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week. 